you have your Bibles, would you take uh, take them out or open them up or turn them on or whatever you need to do and turn to the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I always think it's helpful to kind of read along, but if that's not a no-go for you, just listen to uh, this, this passage of Scripture. Ephesians 1, and we're going to start in verse 11. Now, I just want to tell you, this is, uh, this is prose. It was written in Greek, so it doesn't do anything for us in the original language, but it's prose. It's, it's poetic language that the author, Paul, is using here. Starting in verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Um, good news, bad news today. Uh, the, the good news is that um, we are uh, we're preaching a series about the church. That's us. That's, so it's going to be really applicable to you. So it's always nice. People like to hear about themselves being talked about. So that's good. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, a series about the church. Uh, hey, is there a YouTube video on watching paint dry that I could watch? That sounds about as exciting because I know some people are not excited about the idea of talking about church. Church is not something that resonates in like an exciting, enthusiastic, positive way in, in their lives. And I, I think it's fair for me to point out that I am as churched as as a person can be churched. When I was a kid, um, all our life, our schedule, our calendar, everything centered around church. So I would sleep in the pews at church when my parents were busy doing something. Uh, our vacations centered around being able to find a church on a Wednesday night. It wouldn't be anybody we would know, but we would have to look beforehand to make sure that on our drive, we would be at a church somewhere. Sometimes our vacation centered around church events, like family camps. And so our vacation was a family camp, and this is no joke, where you would listen to four sermons a day. Now, I know some of you are like, four sermons a day? That sounds awesome. I know, but some of you are probably not quite as, uh, as Christian as that. It's not, it's, it's not an exciting association for some people, but yet, list, ta thinking about this idea that, that we're going to be talking about, this series that we're going to be talking about, even a kid like me, I'm excited. I'm really excited. Church is my, my livelihood. For nearly 20 years, I've been working in full-time ministry, which makes me sound so old. I hope it, I hope it works out for me. Now, I, I do want to point out there are, I think a lot of us struggle with some ideas about church because um, we are working with myths. We come to church, even those of us that come to church every Sunday, we kind of have some mythology in our minds about what church is and should be and could be. And, you know, and it's just based on some misunderstandings, and we want to try to address those. Last Sunday, uh, Cameron Walton, who is somewhere back here sitting on the, the grass, Cameron, uh, Cameron, there you are. There he is. He's waving back there. <laughs> Poor Cameron took a nap uh, last Sunday, and he happened to take a nap during uh, my, my sermon, which I don't think has ever happened before. I don't know that anybody's ever slept through one of my sermons. But he woke up just as we were wrapping up and just as we were saying, you were all dismissed. And, and, uh, and Rebecca told me later that Cameron was devastated. 
tears. He was walking onto the grass, and I think Paul was dismissing us, saying, you're all dismissed. And, and Cameron like looked at his parents like, can they start it over? He was crying. He was so sad. He came up to me later, and he's like, why did you, why did you do the show while I was asleep? So, so my goal is that we all are more like Cameron Walton by the end of this Man. sermon or this series, because I think that is the right <laughs> attitude to have about church. Now, I know that's just a church service. Some of you are going to point out church is so much more than just something. I know, I know. We'll talk about that. My, my, uh, the topic, this is, this is going to sound like I'm overselling it, but I'm not. The topic that we're discussing is going to take us to the very heart of what it means to be a human and have purpose in the world. Does that sound like an overpromise? Now, the bad news is that sometimes easy questions kind of defy easy answers. You know, kids will sometimes come up to you and ask you a question, and it seems simple enough. You know, you'll have your, your four or five-year-old, and they'll be like, Daddy, what is love? And you, as a, an adult who has experienced life, you start to launch into your answer, and maybe a sentence or two in, you realize, I don't actually know how to define this, specifically how to define this for myself, but much less in terms that a four or five-year-old will understand. It's, how do you answer? It's an easy question, but it defies kind of an easy answer. Because your children, they've heard you say things like, well, you know, I love you and I love your mother, but they've also heard you say things like, I love tacos. So they're not sure where on that spectrum that they fall and what does this concept mean? So the, the question that defies an easy answer, easy question that defines an easy answer is this. What is church? What is church? That's easy. We all know what church is. We've been going to church all our lives, thousands of times, uh, maybe two, three thousand times in our lives we've gone to church. What is church? All right. I think if we were to pull the lawn here, we would have slightly different, maybe drastically different answers. And the problem is it's not an easy answer because we don't have a complete answer to what is church. We don't have a complete answer. Now we know, okay, yes, Patrick, it has something to do with Sundays. Um, it has, well, we know it's not just Sundays because uh, the preacher's always talking about how we're the church all week, but maybe it's something to do with like, a, maybe it's a social club that focuses on morality and good deeds, like, uh, like Boy Scouts without the badges. Maybe that's kind of something that, to what can we compare church, like Shakespeare might say. Maybe it's a book club where the book of the month is always the Bible, and you just get together and you discuss the Bible every single week. Maybe church is kind of like just being a good human. It's like voting or recycling, and you just do church because that's what good humans do, and your parents did it, and your grandparents did it. Those are incomplete answers. It's like the blind man and the elephant. You know, it, it kind of maybe gets the small aspects of what church is, but it's not a complete answer. So we struggle to answer the question, what is church? Also, we don't share the same answer. We, we, I, if we were to go person to person, we would have different answers for what is church. And different expectations bring different experiences. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but if one person shows up at church and they're like, yeah, church should be like a Bible study book club and, and that's what it's all about. And another person is like, no, it's when me and my friends get together and we hang out. And another person is like, no, 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 it's all about singing. Then you're going to walk away with wildly different evaluations of how church went because we don't have the same answer. We're not sharing the same answer. It's like the boy and his dad who went fishing and they didn't catch anything and they came back home and 
Mom asked Dad, how did it go? And Dad says, it was terrible, complete waste of time. We didn't catch a single thing. And Mom asks the son, how did it go? And he says, it was awesome. I got to spend all day with Dad. And so if we don't have the same expectation, we're going to walk away with different experiences about what church is. And then finally, we struggle to answer this because one of the difficulties is if we get the answer wrong, then church kind of becomes this marginal, peripheral thing in our lives. Um, and I, I think if we have like an answer, if we think church is kind of like where my friends hang out or it's a volunteer organization, then what happens is those of you that already have a good friend group or already have a volunteer organization or already have a Bible study club or a book club, then church is kind of redundant and peripheral and it doesn't really matter. It's not central your life. And we see that. We see people walk away from a relationship with a church family because it's just in their minds, their, their wrong answer has led it to be a peripheral experience. And I think um, I, I read a great book um, recently so called Vertical Church by uh, James McDonald. Recommend it if anybody wants to read it. And it shaped some of my thinking for this series. And one of the quotes he has in the book that I think is so valuable is, is he writes, we only think other things can fulfill our need for church when we are missing the point of church. We only think other things fulfill that need when we are missing the point. And I think, honestly, church, it's critical. We talk about this right now because church is kind of weird right now, right? It's weird. I don't know. I mean, some of you are like, no, oh, I love it. I love outdoors and masks and not hugging people. Well, you're introverts, but we're, for, for a lot of people, church is kind of a strange experience right now, and they're not sure what to do. And in fact, for some people, it kind of makes them want to keep it sort of at arm's length, because it's just strange. That all the routines and the habits that we're used to, like for some people, this is true. For some people, the very fact that we're asking people to wear masks seems to supersede their desire to be around other Christians. It's just, I don't know, I don't know why that's the case. It's too bad, but that's the case. For other people, the fact that we're not singing, they're like, well, I don't even want to come. Because evidently, the only reason they dragged themselves out of bed on a Sunday morning was because they got to sing. And the fact that we're trying to kind of honor the expectations of our governor right now, they don't, they don't want to come. Uh, the fact that we're not hugging and there's no handshakes and all that. I mean, some people, you introverts are loving that. I'm, I don't want to tell on my dad, but my dad loves the fact that nobody can give him a hug legally right now. <laughs> Governor's orders, that's his, that's his thing. It just doesn't, you know. But some of you are like dying. Like, that's what I want out of church. I want to be able to be with people. So we have this shakeup. Church is weird and it's unsettling, but I think it's a chance to reevaluate our assumptions about what it is and what we need to be doing. So, what is church? Of course, to talk about that, to answer that question, uh, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And uh, I want you to, if you would, just imagine, we don't have PowerPoint or any of those uh, tools, but I just want you to imagine uh, on the lawn right here in front of me is a giant word, and the word is glory. You can imagine the huge G and L and O and R and Y just right here. And I want you to have that word in your mind, the word glory, as if it were just this fixture on the lawn today. The word glory. You know, we talk about like church uses a lot of vague kind of religious sounding words and glory fits in that category. We don't we don't use the word really much outside of church. I mean, nobody, nobody used it in the office this week. Nobody said that was a glorious report or that was a glorious meeting. You don't, we don't use that word in those contexts. The only thing I could think of is that maybe some 
southern grandmother uses it when she gets startled. That's the only thing that I can think of a person might use glory outside of religious context. It's a, it's a church word relegated to the church world. So we only use it really, even in church, we only use it in songs. And then if a prayer gets kind of flowery, then you might throw in a glorious here or there in the prayer. But glory, imagine that big word on the lawn, is this crucial biblical concept that we kind of do. We just don't really have much of a, a relationship or we don't really have like a tangible sense of. It's, it's this crucial concept shows up in significant places in scripture. The Hebrew word, and I know you guys all, Hebrew, great, that's awesome. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod, kavod. And uh, you can just, I, I just want you to have that in your mind, glory, and then Hebrew, kavod, because it shows up in some pretty popular uh, verses. Psalm 8, verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1 says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your kavod. In the heavens. Isaiah 6.3. This is that weird passage where, where Isaiah gets a glimpse into the throne room of God. And there's these strange figures called cherubim hovering around God. And they're singing of God. This is like God's playlist on Spotify. This is the lyrics to the song that God once sung to him. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his kavod, his glory. That's the, that's the word. So you're thinking, okay, yeah, I get it. Glory kind of means honor or, you know, something like that around uh, that idea. But wait, there's more. Genesis 12, 10. This is an interesting verse. Abram, he is in uh, Israel, but he, there's a famine in the land. And so he's going to travel down to Egypt to get, out, uh, get some food. It says, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was kavod. Wait, that doesn't sound right. The famine was glorious. I don't, what? Ah, that doesn't make sense. Or 1 Samuel 4.18. Now, I love this. Uh, there's a couple places in scripture that use this. 1 Samuel 4.18 talks about Eli, the prophet Eli. And you know, the Bible gives us a physical detail about Eli. Does anybody know what that is? What it says about Eli? He was a big dude. And not like big, like he worked out a lot. He was heavy because he was eating some of the, uh, the sacrifices. He was taking the best. And he was very, it says Eli was sitting on a bench. He heard that the ark had been stolen and he fell over and broke his neck. And it says, the Bible says he fell over and broke his neck because he was old and very kavod. Well, glorious? No, he was a big dude. It was, he was heavy. Now, some of you are like, okay, yeah, I could kind of see maybe where the word, the word heavy and the word severe, like in a famine, and the word glorious might kind of all sort of fit together. So even in English, right, heavy can mean like, wow, that, uh, that I don't know, I don't want to say person, that thing is heavy, right? That's heavy. But then if you get tough news, maybe you have a friend who's diagnosed with something difficult, you might also say, well, that, that, that news is heavy. It's heavy. That's kavod. That's the Hebrew word kavod. It's heavy. So you can see that the word glory, remember on the lawn, means something like significance. Eli was literally a significant human being, but it also could be that heavens are filled with the significance, the weight of the glory of God. It's a good word. So glory is the evidence pointing towards someone's significance. This is important. Get that definition in your mind. Glory is the evidence pointing towards someone's significance. So it's like if uh, if you work at a, uh, 
uh, I don't know, some fast food place, if you work at McDonald's and the manager comes in, employees might get a little bit more, uh, they, a little bit more busy. They might not be goofing off as much. They might, you know, stand a little bit straighter and they might work just a little bit harder because the manager is here. And that effort on the part of the employees is an example of the manager's kavod, right? Now, if the CEO of McDonald's walks into a McDonald's, I bet you everybody is in sparkling uniforms. There's more managers there. Everybody is saying, yes, sir, no, sir, thank you. They're treating the customers with utmost respect because the CEO has significance. He has kavod and it, and it precedes them. They're preparing for his arrival. And when he leaves, they talk about what it was like to have the CEO there because he has a weight of significance. If you were to meet teenage Patrick, uh, some of you have, and you were to take a tour of my bedroom, you would notice two things. One, you would notice that in the last uh, few years, I've gotten a lot more tidy than I was as a teenager. My room would have been a little bit of a mess, and, and now I'm completely over that. And Don't go look at my office right now. The second thing you would notice is that on my wall, all over my wall, were posters. Posters of basketball players. I grew up in the glory days of the NBA, and so I had posters of guys, like some of you will know these names, guys like Clyde Drexler. He was awesome. Portland Trailblazers. Clyde the Glide. Sean Kemp. And if you were somebody that was built and looked like me, then you also had posters of guys like John Stockton, because that was your only hope of being an NBA player, is that you'd be a guy who could pass really well. But my favorite poster and on my wall that you would have seen it was front and center was this poster of, of course, Michael Jordan. And it was the 1988 dunk contest. And what Michael Jordan was doing is mind blowing. Now some of you won't care about basketball, but I just kind of want to try to bring you into my world a little bit. Michael Jordan was dunking the basketball as a show of his athleticism. And so he jumps from the free throw line which is 15 feet away from the hoop. He jumps from the free throw line and he dunks the ball at 10 feet in the air. And this cameraman, this photographer, got this snapshot where it just looks like Michael Jordan is flying, like he's defying gravity and it's every eye is focused on Jordan. I mean, he's, he's mid-flight. It's an unbelievable picture. And even to this day, when I see that image, I will just stop and stare because it is like so impressive. The poster in my bedroom declared the glory of Michael Jordan. It declared his kavod. The fact that somebody, and this is when our family lived overseas, the fact that some teenage boy who lived way across the Pacific Ocean would have a photograph of Michael Jordan dunking a basketball on his bedroom wall points to the significance of Jordan, his glory. I know it's strange to talk about somebody in those terms. You know what I mean? It's like a weird thing to say a person has glory, but that's what it is. That poster is, it shows the weight of Michael Jordan. And so Patrick, you know, little teenage Patrick wanted to have Jordan's shoes and he wanted to have Jordan clothes and he wanted to be Jordan's height because all those things point to the significance of Michael Jordan. If we're using Bible language, the poster declares his glory. Now maybe basketball isn't your thing, I get that. Maybe it's a piece of music memorabilia that's so important to you and you have it in a special place in your house or you have a poster on your wall or you have some object that reminds you of that concert or that artist because that declares their glory. The thing isn't the glory, it declares their glory. The skies are not the glory of God, they declare the glory of God. This is so valuable, so important. 
So the heavens declare the glory of God. It's like a sign when you walk into a, go into a small town, you know, and the small town doesn't have a lot going for it, but there was this one famous person that was born there. And so there's a sign that declares the glory of this celebrity that is, it reflects on the town. Or it's like a first edition signed copy of, from your favorite author. It declares the glory of their, that author. The heavens, Psalm 1-8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. So whether you're watching a thunderstorm or whether you see stars or whether it's clouds, that's God's glory. It points to God. But there is one poster that God created and he put in the world that points to God's glory in a more clear, significant way than any else. It outshines the stars and the clouds and everything else. There's one poster, there's one element of God's glory that he has given the world that points more directly to his glory than anything else. In 1969, the Apollo 8, uh, 11 mission, they had landed on the moon and they were coming back to Earth. They were in that lunar module coming back to Earth, going through space at, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. And Buzz Aldrin decides that as they're looking out the window and as they're seeing the covode of God and the universe, I mean, you talk about guys that had seen, like they'd seen the earth rise over the moon. Like can you imagine seeing an earth rise? You would look at that and you'd be like, wow, that is unbelievable. So Buzz Aldrin with the three other guys in the lunar, the, the return module decides to read a passage of scripture because of course, Right? There's, there's no other being in the universe that can kind of like account for that kind of avode. Of course it has to be God. You wouldn't look at a human and say, thank you, human, for this. God is the only person that, that it, it's only appropriate. And Buzz Aldrin actually read Psalm 8 that we were just reading. You have set your glory in the he heavens. He actually read verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 8. Listen to this. He goes, this is what David wrote. And imagine Buzz Aldrin reading this as they're flying back to earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. Then he says, verse 4, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Verse 5, Psalm 8, verse 5, you, God, have made them a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned them, humans, you have crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. You know what David is saying? David is saying that humans are, are posters of God's glory. That when we look at one another, what we should see is a declaration of glory to God. That's what David is writing. We are posters of God's glory. We capture God's glory unlike anything else. Humans. That, what, I don't know that humans are that cool. We're literally, we're literally the poster child for God. That's what we are. Humans. Now, some we are, we are the first edition signed by God. We're made in the image of God. We have this capacity to declare the glory of God. And it's because humans can create music and art that engages emotions and moves us. We can build beautiful gardens and huge skyscrapers that, that, that are incredible and amazing. Humans have this incredible uh, ability and purpose. We can, we can innovate medical technology that transforms lives. I mean, I can't do any of those things, but humans have the capacity to do those things. Even Michael Jordan, mid-dunk, in 1988, when somebody grabs a picture of him, that can declare the glory of God because God created that human and gave him natural ability and talent. And God says, I want you to use that natural ability and talent to declare my glory. But then what do humans do? Well, thanks, God. I'm going to go ahead and work toward my own 
glory, my own kavod, my own significance. But we need to nail this idea down. And each point I'm about to make could be a sermon, and we just don't have time to dig into it. But this, humans, our purpose is to glorify God. Your purpose is not to raise a family, have a career. Your purpose is not to uh, not to go to church every Sunday. Your purpose is not to excel at your job. Your purpose is not to any of, love your wife. Your purpose, your purpose, your foundational plan A purpose is to glorify God. All those other things serve that purpose. So when you are generous with your time and your energy and your money, that declares the glory of God. When you uh, work with excellence and honesty in a way that, that, that engages the well-being of your coworkers and in your employer, when you do those things well, that declares the glory of God. If you wake up in the morning and you enjoy a cup of hot coffee on your back deck as, you just, as a gift from God, that declares the glory of God. When you live your life with the intention and purpose of the creator in mind, that glorifies God. It's, it's, it's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. They were arguing about, hey, what actions most glorify God? And Paul says, listen, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink the thing, whatever you do, make sure you do it to the glory of God. We are posters declaring the glory of God. To fulfill that purpose is the meaning of life. This is the secret. This is what philosophers have been trying to search for for years. To fulfill that purpose is the meaning of life. It's the secret. We were designed to live for his glory. God created us that way. So when we move towards that purpose, we will sense a, a fulfillment and a meaning and a purpose. When we move away from that purpose, we are going to sense frustration and unhappiness because we were not designed to do this other thing. It's like if you're trying to chop down a tree and the only tool you have is a screwdriver. You're not going to get the job done and you're going to be miserable trying. Whether or not you like this, whether or not you want this to be true, your purpose was to, to glorify God. And if you move towards that purpose, you will find meaning and significance in life. It's all over scripture, all over scripture. And then finally, to fail at that purpose of glorifying God is what the Bible defines as sin. Sin isn't, oops, I broke some arbitrary religious rule. I made God mad. Sin is to fail to live up to our God-given potential to glorify him. What does Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is looking at us and saying, you are made for so much more than what you are doing. It's like we're these posters. It's like we're that Michael Jordan poster on my wall declaring the glory of God, and then like my sibling comes along and scribbles all over it. Well, you can still kind of see what it's for and what it's about. You can still kind of make out Michael Jordan ducking the dunking the basketball, but it, it, it's lessened, it's dimmed, it's faded, it's glory. And as humans, when we engage in sin, when I decide that I'm gonna pursue my own well-being over and above somebody else's, well, we're dimming that glory that we can exhibit to the to the to declare to God. We're, we're, we're painting over it, we're, we're fading it. And the entire idea of the gospel is that Jesus came to restore our ability to declare the glory of God. So everything we do can either declare or detract from the glory of God. Everything you do. It's 
what it's all about. Okay, now, I know that's basic, it's good stuff. Some of you are still with me. Some of you are like, ah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that. That's fine. But glory is the significance of God. Humans were designed to declare the glory of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, Patrick, you started off, if I remember, way back about three hours ago, it feels like, talking about what is church. What happened to that? Now you're talking about glory. What is church? Ah, well, there is one loose end to tie up. If you turn back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and verse 11, I want you to see what Paul writes in very poetic language about what it means to declare the glory of God and how God designed us. He designed us as human individuals to declare his glory, but then he designed this collective, this organization, this institution that is designed to declare the glory of God in a unique way. Ephesians 1.11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined. This is the purpose and plan for everybody, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and his will. So you can fight it if you want, but you're not going to get very far. You can try to pursue your own glory if you want, but it's not going to work. Verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, and you also, in case you're thinking you're left out, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, when you believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with the redemption of those who are in God's possession. And then he says it again, to the praise of his glory. I want you to imagine the church is like an orchestra. Imagine we're out all, all on this lawn and we got the brass section over here and we got the reed section and we've got the, I don't know, the cymbal guy over there. And I don't know. I don't know much about orchestras, but just imagine that you are all in orchestra and you're all in different parts. And when we play the same music, when we all are on the same page, when we're all playing this together, it's beautiful. It sounds wonderful. And there has always ever only been one person in the audience and it's not me. It's all of us playing to the praise of his glory. There's this audience of one over here, and we're playing our parts for him. That's always been the goal. That's always been the goal of the church, is that we are part of the orchestra. Imagine it's the 1812 overture, and you've got the cymbal guy, and you've got the cannons, and it all is building to this big point that's just overwhelming, and you're just moved by, by this music because it's all beautiful and purposeful, and it all, it all is just this amazing. We're all playing our parts. But then the tuba guy decides, you know what? I'm not going to play my part anymore. I'm going to do a tuba solo. I don't know. That was the funniest thing I could think of. Tuba guy, and he's off there doing his own thing. And what happens to the music? What happens to the orchestra? It begins to fall apart. And then this this flautist, is that what you call a flute guy? I don't know. This flautist is over here. Well, the tuba guy's not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Or maybe the cymbal guy says, I want my own glory. And so he just starts banging the cymbals, doing his own thing. What happens to that symphony? It just falls apart into a cacophony. And you know what? That's often what the church is today. Because we have decided that this is for, we're the one listening to the music. We're the one that are being played for. But we're not. We've just got a trumpet or a triangle or a tuba. And we're all playing for the praise of his glory. When we get together on that page, then church becomes something magical and beautiful. When we're fighting for our own glory and our own way and our own way of doing things, it's just going to be a mess. And that's why so much of church is a mess. Maybe you can still make it a humility, but it's not beautiful and moving like it is. The praise of his glory is our first order purpose. 
everything serves that goal. Some of you might be thinking, well, why? Wait, isn't like discipleship? That's the most important thing. That's what we have on our wall. Uh, develop disciples. Nope. We only develop disciples because that brings more glory to God. It brings more people into the fold that can glorify God. Well, what about studying the Bible and obeying him? We only do that because it helps us live lives that are more in alignment with his glory. Well, what about, what about just singing and worship? Great, yeah, but we only do that because it brings him glory. All those things serve that purpose. They're us playing our part. And you may have, I don't know, you may be a violinist and have an amazing solo and amazing talents, or you may be the triangle guy and you get to play like twice in the whole thing. But we all play our parts to the glory of God. What is church? That's, that's church. It's us getting on the same page and deciding that the only thing that matters in life is glorifying God and everything serves that purpose. I don't know about you, but this is why this gets me excited. It gets me wound up because I'm like, okay, yeah, if we can get a few more people and a few more people and pretty soon we got everybody and then we got new visitors walking in and they're like, wow, that music sounds good. I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna find my instrument. I'm gonna play my part. But if we're just all doing our own thing, wanting our own way, wanting church to be our own thing, it's just gonna be a mess gonna be horrible and you know what's gonna happen eventually people are gonna be like oh, this is not for me because we're not we're not glorifying god church is a gathering of people that he has redeemed that play and declare the glory of god that's church that's church then you see why i'm so wound up about this series all right we've got more things that we're going to talk about next week next week i'll just give you a quick preview uh, we're going to talk about like kind of our specific role and i'm going to talk about why People from Texas are grammatically wrong, but theologically right. Because there is something that they say that I think helps us understand how we are part of this whole thing. All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna pray, we're gonna dismiss, but I challenge you. I, this is what I've been doing for, for weeks, is just every morning I've been praying like, God, reveal your glory to me, just like Moses prayed when God showed him uh, his glory, and, and praying that God use this church to your glory. I've been praying for you guys that you would live to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I just pray, oh man, I pray that you take my words such as they are and just get them out of my own way and that your spirit would take the intention and purpose of, of what we are as a church and just, just drive it deep into our hearts. God, we know that there is no greater purpose in life than to glorify you Help us not be distracted by anything else. God, help us live to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed. And I'm glad Cameron made